I'll have to move this. These are nice, by the way. Yeah. So I brought this with me. Any fans of elephants out there? My grandmother, uh, growing up, one thing I always noticed about her home was that she always had elephants everywhere around the house, uh, displayed different sizes and colors and different materials. And I remember her telling me once that all the trunks were, I, I asked her this, I think, why are all the trunks always up? And she said that, I guess that means good luck. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I always, whenever I see an elephant, I think of my grandmother. And uh, something like this, though, in my house would not last very long. Um, we're in a season where we have lots of little ones, and uh, to them, everything's a toy. And so if we brought this into our house, I could imagine that this would be storming the gates of some Lego castle within minutes. And uh, in fact, when I bought this, it had a tag on it. It said, for decorative purposes only, not a toy. Uh, Not all of our kids can read, so that wouldn't mean anything to them. Uh, my wife and I have sort of this joke when we're out and about and we see something nice and we turn to each other and we say, how long do you think that'll last in our house? And uh, usually a guess uh, anywhere from zero to 24 hours is a good guess. Um, you know, there's, uh, things break a lot in our house. Uh, yeah, I, mean, it's not, I don't want to give the impression that we have an animal house or anything, but close. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, so when things break in my house, here's what happens. Here's the protocol. Uh, the kids know if I'm out at the office, they, they bring whatever's broken into the bedroom. They put it on my night table by my bed. And when I get home, I, I look at it, and I have to kind of triage and, and make a judgment call. And so, for example, if this elephant were in my house uh, and, you know, maybe... Uh, just a leg were broken off, you know, cleanly. Um, you know, this is pretty devastating, actually. <laughs> but, so if it was a clean break, I'd get the super glue out, and I'd try to, you know, do my best to piece it all together. Uh, but if, um, you know, if, if it's a little bit more severe... You know, and there's just shards everywhere. Um, You know, there's just no bringing this thing back. It, um, you know, it goes in the trash. Because what what I do is I I look at this and then I look to myself and my own abilities to fix things. And I would look at this and realize that... uh, in myself, I have no resources to bring this thing back. Uh, there, I have no ability. Uh, I mean, maybe someone out there could do something with this. I don't know. But um, I would look internally, and I would determine that there's no hope for this. And so it goes in the trash. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Ezekiel 37. And Ezekiel uh, was a prophet who lived during a time where the nation of Israel had no hope. They had no hope. They, they thought of their nation as I would as I looked at that elephant. There's no bringing this thing back. There's no hope. 
Ezekiel lived in Jerusalem uh, during one of the early attacks of, of Babylon and was led into captivity in one of the first waves of exiles. And while in Babylon, he has a vision of, of the temple and, and the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. As a Jew, this is devastating. This is devastating. And it was an act of judgment against Israel because because their hearts had become hard. And the reality is that they, they left God long before he left them. He was so patient. He was so patient. They spurned their God. They, they sacrificed to idols. They committed all kinds of wickedness and injustice. And later in the book, uh, Ezekiel receives word officially from Jerusalem that Solomon's temple and the city of Jerusalem has been burned to the ground. It's been burned to the ground. And this, this brings us to our passage this morning where Ezekiel has another vision. He has another vision offering hope. So we're going to read Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. You can follow along with me. I'm reading from the ESV. It's also on the screen behind me. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very Dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. So he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. 
Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will, place in you, I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, your perfect and holy word. Father, we pray that as we uh, gaze into your word this morning, that we would be changed. God, prepare the soil of our hearts to receive your word with joy. And God, make us more like your son Jesus today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel's given quite a task here. Uh, Some pastors complain as though they feel like they're preaching to dead people on Sundays. Well, Ezekiel's literally preaching to dry bones. So uh, I can imagine that he might have felt a little foolish, but he did what he was told. We're told in verse 11 that these dry bones represent the whole house of Israel. As a nation, they, they were essentially dead. They had no land. They had no temple. The sacrificial system is, is done. Uh, people were scattered among the nations. It didn't look good. But the imagery of these dry bones is much more than just uh, the the death of their national identity. This this language of dry bones was common in Hebrew. uh, and It was a way of describing utter despair. Utter despair. And you see examples of this. For example, Proverbs 17.22. We read that uh, a joyful heart is good medicine. But a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And again, Psalm 31.10, we read, My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. So this is a common way of describing despair. And this was, this was how the nation of Israel felt. They felt despair when they thought about uh, them as a people. And, and then right here in verse 11, the people of Israel say themselves, Our bones are dried up. And our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Fishkill Baptist Church, we're not immune to despair either. This was once a thriving church with multiple services and a full parking lot. And there's some of you who remember those days. And it's easy to look around now and despair and to think about the needs and despair. It could be easy to wonder, are we too far gone? We had a health assessment done a little over two years ago, and we were told that our church is on the the back end of this downward slope of a church life cycle. The needs here are great, and it can be easy to despair and feel as if our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. 
Ezekiel's vision is a vision of hope for God's people who look around at their circumstances as exiles and see only despair. And I don't know if that's you this morning, that you look around at our church and you feel despair, but this is for you. This is for us. God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? The people's answer is essentially, no way. We're done. We're done for. But Ezekiel knows the one who's asking him this question. He knows that that nothing is impossible for God, but he also knows things aren't looking good. So his answer is a pretty good one considering the circumstances. Oh Lord, only you know. Only you know. But Ezekiel 37 in this vision is a reminder to us that God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. He breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2. Jesus in John 11 calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Jesus himself busted out of that tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And it's God who gives life to spiritually dead sinners. It's God who gives hope when all we can see is despair. In Ezekiel 37, God promises a new covenant with his people. And this is, this is a profound passage in which he promises uh, several things. One, to cleanse them from their impurities. Verse 25, he promises to give them a new heart, to, to remove their heart of stone, and to give them a heart of flesh. And he promises to indwell them by his spirit, verse 27. These are amazing promises. But one could get to the end of chapter 36 and wonder, how, how is this going to happen? Can God do this? Is this something that he's capable of? In 37, chapter 37 is the answer to this question. And we're going to look at how God promised to bring Israel back to life and see that this is also how God can bring Fishkill Baptist Church back to life. And the big question for us this morning is, how can a dying church be revived? How can a dying church be revived? I'm going to look at Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. I'm going to draw four points for us this morning. And I'm going to give them to you right now. We'll just leave them up there. But God, God will revive his church by the power of God, through the spirit of God, at work through the word of God, by means of faithful servants of God. That's our, our outline. Those are our four points. Let's get to it. The power of God. Revitalization is a term being used uh, frequently among the elders to describe what our church needs, the kind of work that our church needs. Uh, Andy Davis wrote a book called Revitalize, and he defines this term in this way, pretty simple, to make alive again. Revitalize, to make alive again. So in other words, if life is what we need, and God is the only author of life, then unless God gives the command, it will never happen. If life is what we need, and God is the only author of life, then unless he gives the command, it'll never happen. 
Revitalize is an imperative. It's a command that God speaks to the, to the dry bones and to dying churches. Live. Live. And then he says, he says this uh, in Ezekiel 16. This is interesting. It's pretty graphic, so I'm not going to describe it all to you, but Israel in Ezekiel 16 is described as a newborn baby who's, who's discarded, rejected. And uh, it says that this newborn baby was tossed aside into a field and left to die. And God comes along, he says, he, he passes by, and in verse 6 of chapter 16, he passed by, he saw this dying baby, and he said, live. Live. And then he says, I made you grow like a plant of the field. I made you grow. Notice our passage today. All of the times that God says of himself, either explicitly or implicitly, I will do something. I will cause breath to enter you. I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you. I will put breath in you. I will open your gates or your graves. I will bring you into the land. I will put my spirit in you. I have spoken. I will do it. It's powerful. And this is why self-reliance is so repugnant to God. Because it's a hard attitude that attempts to sit on God's throne as the only rightful giver of life. And it's subtle. And it can be pervasive. And it takes two different forms. One form of self-reliance is despair. And that's what we've been kind of talking about for the most part here so far. We can look at the circumstances of our church like I look at that shattered elephant and then look to ourselves and think, I can't do this. No one can do this. It's hopeless. The other side of the coin of self-reliance is arrogance. Thinking, we can do this. I know what to do. I got this great idea for this cool program or this exciting event. You know, that'll motivate people. That'll bring people through the doors. That'll get people excited again. Maybe we can have a concert or something, right? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Creative events, programming, those are not bad things in and of themselves. They can be good tools in the hands of the only one who can give life. But, but they're not where our hope should be. They're not where our hope should be. Both of these forms of self-reliance were on display in Deuteronomy 1. You may remember, you know, when the people of Israel went and spied out the land and they, they came back and they said, you know, the, the people there look like giants. We look like grasshoppers. They looked internally and said, I, we don't have what it takes. Like I would look at that shattered elephant. I don't have what it takes. This is crazy. Who in their right mind would go up against those people? We're like grasshoppers. They'll just squish us. It's hopeless. And so God punishes them. 
And he tells them, you're going to wander the desert for 40 years until this generation passes away. And only then, after that, will you go and, and take possession of the land. But then there's a group of Israelites who presumptuously decide, we're going to go up and take the land. You know, we, we changed our minds. We, you know, we, we did wrong, and we're, we're going to go and do it. Who's with me? And they go up, and they go in, and they thought, this is going to be easy. It wasn't easy. It was impossible. It was impossible because the Lord didn't go with them. It was, it was in their own strength, and they were routed. The Amorites who lived there, just, it said they chased them like bees. You ever run from bees in your yard? It's scary. I don't like bees. Andrew Davis writes in his book, Revitalize, he says, if you approach church revitalization looking at your own strength, your wisdom, technique, verbal skills, reasoning, winsome personality, people skills, shrewdness, or even revitalization experience at some other church, you're being self-reliant. On God and God alone, you must set your hope. Church, we need to repent of all forms of self-reliance. The despair of we can't and the arrogance of we can must yield to the power of God who says, I will. I will. This reality should drive us to our knees in prayer as we plead with God to speak life, that life-giving word to our church, live, live. Revitalize, O Lord. Let that be our prayer, the cry of our hearts. If you get emails from our church, you'll find an email from us in your inbox when you get home. It's a link to a 40-day devotional prayer guide for church revitalization. And I wanted to make this tool available to all of you to use and to pray with unity and intentionality for our church. And so the, the idea is that next Sunday, the 21st, if we all start together on the 21st and we follow those 40 days on through, uh, that we'll finish right before Good Friday, right before Easter weekend. We should be finishing it up. And during these 40 days, I want to encourage you to reach out to one another and talk about what God's doing in your heart, how he's changing you and working in you. If you don't have a computer or access to a printer, uh, we do have limited copies available on the information counter. and You can grab one on your way out. Uh, but please make sure people who need those get them because there aren't many. Uh, the reason we didn't print off a ton is because it's like 40 pages long. So it's a, it's a long document. But um, yeah, God will revive his church by his power. So let's pray for that. He'll do it by his power, but he'll also do it through his spirit. And that's our second point. You may recall John chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus that for him to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. He must be born again. And this was hard for Nicodemus to believe. He couldn't quite get where Jesus was going here. 
And Jesus tells him that unless you're born of the water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him that the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The Greek word here for spirit is pneuma. And it also means wind uh, or breath. And it's the same word that the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses in our passage today, pneuma. The Hebrew word is ruach. I think I said that right. Is that right, Gary? Ruach, maybe. <laughs> I'm no Hebrew scholar. Nicholas could probably help me there too. Uh, but ruach, is, uh, it's used multiple times throughout this passage. And it's translated as spirit, as breath, as wind. It's all throughout here. And notice that for both Jesus in John 3 and in Ezekiel's vision, it's the Spirit that brings life. It's the Spirit that brings life. Look at verse 14. I will put my Spirit within you and you shall live. One chapter earlier in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Simply put, it's only a work of the Holy Spirit moving in each of our hearts that will bring this church back to life. It's the Spirit of God working in our hearts. But the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. That's our next point. Ezekiel is told to say to the dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. This is how God works. Remember back in Genesis 1, God spoke powerful words and called all of creation into existence from nothing. Here in Ezekiel, it's it's the power of his word that commands flesh back onto these lifeless bones and breath to come into them and give them life. And it says... This is the reason, so that we may know that he is the Lord. So that we may know that he is the Lord. This isn't something I did or you did or any one of us did. This is what God did. In the New Testament, Jesus uh, said to take away the stone from the grave of his dead friend Lazarus. And uh, Martha protests, Lord, he's been in there four days. It's going to stink. There was no hope there that he's coming back out again. Four days is a long time for a dead body to sit there. And it's in this hopelessness that Jesus commands with powerful words, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he writes... uh, 
chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It was the word of truth, the gospel of salvation that God worked through to bring the Spirit into them. In Romans 10, Paul writes, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the power of God through the Spirit of God at work through the word of God that brings life to Ezekiel's dry bones and to dying churches. There's one more thing God uses. Faithful servants. God could have spoken directly to the dry bones, but he didn't. He chose to work through the means of a man, not a perfect man. A man named Ezekiel. He did the same thing with Moses. Paul reasons in Romans 10 again that if faith comes by hearing the gospel, then how are people to hear without someone preaching? We are the means by which God wants to bring life. It should absolutely blow us away and humble us that God invites us to participate with him in bringing dead things to life. That's pretty cool. That should get you excited. God wants to use you to do that. Think about it. We're the means. You're the means by which God wants to bring spiritually dead sinners back to life or to life in the first place. He wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use us to bring spiritually dead churches back to life. But here's the thing. We must be faithful. We must be faithful. Look at verse 7. Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And again in verse 10, I prophesied as he commanded me. We've got to be faithful. We don't have the luxury of going off script. We must be obedient. It's easy for a pastor or teacher who desires too much to be liked to modify the message a little bit so that people will like it more. We see this today with the pervasiveness of the prosperity gospel that tells people that if you trust Christ and have enough faith, then you won't get sick. And you can probably have that car you like too. Who doesn't want to hear that? Sign me up. I'll give to that. Where do you, I'll, tell me where to give. I'll do that. That's exciting. Not getting sick. Getting stuff I like. That's cool. That'll fill a church. We've got to be careful. We also see this with the progressive Christianity movement that 
conveniently tosses aside the word of God as soon as they're confronted with something about God that they don't like, that doesn't meet their postmodern sensitivities. Hell? That sounds too harsh and judgy. Let's just get rid of that. We don't need to talk about that. Christ is the only way to God? That's kind of arrogant and exclusive. No one likes that. Let's get rid of that too. The gospel has always been countercultural. And Jesus himself tells us the world will hate you because it hated me first. We don't have the luxury of changing the message. We've got to be faithful. Church, the stakes are high. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about souls. We need, we need prayer. We need your prayers. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your teachers. Pray for one another as we share the gospel with our neighbors and our friends that we will faithfully proclaim the word of truth. Because only God has the power through his spirit, through his word, to bring life to dead things. Only God has the power to do that. And when he does it, there'll be no doubt who did it. In verse 14, God says that after he does all these things, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Church, when we are faithful to stay on script and trust the power of God to do only what he can do by his life-giving spirit through the power of the word, it's then that we'll be able to look back, Lord willing, in five years, ten years, who knows how long, I don't know. But to look back at some point in time and, and have our hearts just swell with praise to God because we will know that we have seen it with our eyes that God breathed life into something that was dying. I, I hope to be here to celebrate that and see these pews filled and this parking lot filled with lives who've been transformed by the power of God at work through the Spirit of God because we were faithful because we were faithful. Pray with me. Lord, forgive us for the sin of self-reliance in any form, whether in despair or in arrogance. When we come to the end of ourselves and our circumstances overwhelm us, give us the grace to go to our knees in prayer and look to you and your infinite resources to bring life where there is no life and to bring hope where there is no hope by the movement of your spirit propelled by the faithful proclamation of your word by the means of faithful servants. Amen.